who in their right mind would want to be a farmer? Agriculture producers have to deal with unpredictable weather, turbulent commodity markets, changing climates, machinery breaking down, and livestock breaking out about 15 minutes before you're supposed to leave to go to the dentist. Agriculture may not be the stress-free path to prosperity, but it can give you a connection to the land that few other jobs can. And right now, there's a group of Albertans looking to build that connection for themselves, and they didn't even grow up on a farm. I'm Derek Leahy, and in this episode of Rural Roots to Climate Solutions, we're talking about new farmers as a farm solution, that's also a climate solution. My name is Dana Penrice, and I'm the Prairies Program Manager with Young Agrarians. And I should also mention that I am the coordinator for Holistic Management Canada, so I kind of wear two hats. Um, I live at Shoal Lake, Manitoba, on on a farm um, with my uh, in-laws, and uh, I grew up in Lacombe. If you've done anything in the world of organic agriculture, regenerative agriculture, sustainable agriculture in the last 10 years in Alberta, you've probably heard the name Dana Penrice before. I've known Dana for about four years, and since I've known her, she's been involved in Organic Alberta, the Human Venture Institute, Holistic Management Canada, the National Farmers Union, Rural Roots to Climate Solutions, I want to say the Manitoba Organic Alliance, and of particular relevance to this episode, Young Agrarians. Clearly, Dana has an interest in agriculture. And my interest in agriculture uh, really came from, you know, being on an acreage just outside of, in central Alberta. And um, I always kind of felt like I was like, we, it was like a larger acreage, it was about 20 acres. And um, always kind of felt like I was like in between farming and an urban experience. So, um, you know, it was kind of that mix of like farm kid, city kid, because we had uh, cattle. My dad and I raised extra cattle together. And then, uh, you know, we had pigs and chickens and all kinds of things at various points. But so I felt like I kind of got that like production side of things and learning all about that but never like our family wasn't uh, like financially dependent on farming so you know I didn't really understand that business side of things and but you know I just loved being outside and being with the animals so that's kind of what got me into it and uh, yeah I went to I think one of the things that really kind of kept me going was I went to university and studied animal science and I had a professor Dr. Frank Robinson who really uh, got me into chickens and uh, he studied chickens. He called himself a chicken gynecologist. And uh, he was just like a super engaging kind of person that really like, you you know, wants to bring people into agriculture, engage them with where their food comes from. And I just kind of got hooked from that. And uh, that I think was a big kind of rocket booster on my um, path into agriculture. Cool. And what was sort of like your path into agriculture extension work? Um, well, that my work with uh, Dr. Robinson was really around ag education. So we ran this program called There's a Heifer in Your Tank. And it was uh, a project that came out of 
uh, an animal science class and the students were asked to answer uh, quirky questions you never knew you had about animal agriculture. That was the tagline, it was always a mouthful. Um, <laughs> but it was questions like, which or like which end of the egg comes out of the hen first, the round end or the pointy end? Or, um, you know, does chocolate milk really come from brown cows? You kids ask that question. Or one question that comes up sometimes is are brown eggs more nutritional than white eggs? Um, things like that. Uh, so the students would take those questions and look up the science behind things or behind all of it and then create these presentations that they started out kind of just as like PowerPoints and turned into these like song and dances kind of performances <laughs> about these questions. And uh, it was super silly and fun, but super engaging and really educational and yeah, that just kind of got me hooked on the concept of ag education. And that just kind of has flowed over into ag extension on, you know, maybe it's not so much teaching the consumer about food now. For me, like I've moved more into teaching uh, people about farming itself. So, yeah. Hmm. Okay, I didn't actually realize there was this like teaching theme for a lot of your career. Yeah, I always wanted to go in like kind of do higher education in ag education, but they don't offer it in Canada. Mm. Uh, so I had to go to the States, which I really didn't want to live in the States. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Dana is one of those rare systems changers that you might be lucky enough to cross paths with in life. An agriculture producer I was working with out in Red Deer a few years back put it perfectly. Whereas most people might look at an issue from a farm level, a provincial level, maybe even a national level, Dana is one of those few people that looks at issues from a civilization level. So knowing that Dana just does so much for the agricultural system out here on the prairies, I had to ask her, had she ever considered doing less? Doing less? You know, you oh. kind of make the rest of us look bad, so I'm just wondering. <laughs> the thought of doing less. Um, I, I really struggle with that. I... I mean, I've worked to the point of break breakdown, um, as you know, <laughs> and I've experienced. And often people are like, oh, well, you just need to do less. And I really don't like that response um, because I love the work. Like, I just can't not do it kind of thing sometimes. And one of my favorite things is like, as when things overlap and are super synergistic and um you know you're kind of like yeah you're doing stuff for young agrarians but it's benefiting holistic management canada or it's you know like you're building those networks and they're weaving into each other you know it's kind of like this thing where it's like the whole is bigger than the sum of the parts mm. um but yeah it gets kind of crazy sometimes but uh i'm slowly learning to manage when the crazy times are happening and uh yeah that's a funny question <laughs> <laughs> okay cool thanks and uh young agrarians like obviously i'm familiar uh, with the organization as a uh, alumni or graduate or whatever i should call myself but just for people who don't know about the organization could you just tell us what it does how it got started sure so uh young agrarians really came about from uh a conversation at the national farmers union uh, youth caucus 
Um, and kind of back in the day, like the, the youth caucus at the NFU was kind of more like the kids of um, farmers. And it was like 17, 18 year old kind of things. And slowly over time, it morphed into being um, a little bit older group, like kind of 20s to 30s kind of thing. And, and they were more like not coming from a farming background. Um, and um, they were really looking, you know, they were, they were interested in advocacy and policy, um, but they were really starting to look for that, like, kind of learning space, like, how do we actually find mentors? How do we, you know, learn about just getting started in farming? And um, they basically, they saw the need to kind of develop an offshoot of that. So um, that's kind of how Young Agrarians came about. Um, it started in BC in 2011 and um, has really started from this model of like grassroots um, farmer to farmer learning. Really the idea is like that the extension is in the community itself, like everybody in the room is has some kind of expertise in farming that they can share with each other. Um, and so their model was really just around like organizing farm tours and potlucks. And uh, so we got to go out, um, my partner and I, and a couple of our, other of our farming friends um, went out to experience one of these events in BC. And it was kind of funny because we were like the cattle people from Alberta and like um, my partner, Ted and our friend Blake, like they were all dudded up in their like cowboy clothes and like, but mixed in amongst like all these BC small scale vegetable farmers <laughs> who you can imagine were kind of on the hippie, you know, that kind of image. Um, but it was this feeling of like, these are our people, like these are people asking the same kinds of questions we were about getting started and facing similar challenges. And um, yeah, it was just like such a fun, engaging event that uh, I was just kind of like, we got to bring this back to Alberta. And so we uh, brought it back to Alberta in 2015 and started with kind of like a young farmer mixer and organized that in Red Deer. And there was like 75 people that showed up and some people drove like six hours to be there. And it was just like, okay, this is needed. And yeah, that's kind of how we got things rolling here. Very cool. And yeah. uh, so and now I know why it's just all over the prairies as well as BC, but uh, specifically, maybe we'll just narrow it down to Alberta. What does YA, YA today do in Alberta? Sure. So our tagline at YA is that we're growing the next generation of regenerative farmers and ranchers. And um, we've got a number of different programs. So, we, I mean, before COVID, we were still doing potlucks and farm tours and stuff like that. Um, we also host uh, winter mixers, which are kind of more like a two-day kind of conference style, presentation style, networking uh, event all around new farming issues, um, sharing stories, all that great stuff. And then we also run an apprenticeship program um, that has uh, helps people to kind of gain that hands-on experience um, and, you know, live on a farm for a while and see if it's what they want uh, to do as a career. And then we're also starting to dig a little bit into the land access issues around actually like, how do we get the farmers? Okay, we've trained them up through this apprenticeship program. How do we actually get them on the land farming? And then the last program we're kind of launched um, this year was a business boot camp, um, which helps uh, new farmers to develop their business plans. 
And we just had like crazy uptake of that program. We were expecting to run one session with like one cohort with 30 people in it and we ran three. So I think as of uh, the end of this spring, we'll have had 90 people go through that and people have already signed up for the fall program. So yeah, it's pretty exciting. I don't know, you guys are doing a great job of finding the needs in the community and meeting them, it's fantastic. And that needs issue has been the whole model of like, that's what I loved about the potlucks was like, there was time for everybody to sit down um, and share where they were farming, um, you know, uh, and then they shared any needs or opportunities that they have. So that really just kind of like gets people talking to each other and gets people helping each other out. And, uh, you know, I've seen some fun things at those kinds of circles where, People are like, I need, you know, I don't know what it is. Like, I need friends on my farm. (laughs) 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 Like they're feeling socially isolated, right? And then all of a sudden, you know, they're mixing with other people during the networking and they have a bunch of farming friends, which is great. With the apprenticeship program, we uh, grew it this year across the prairies. So it started in Alberta four years ago. I think we started in that first year with, oh, I might get this wrong. I think it was about eight farms in Alberta. Um, And uh, now we're in Saskatchewan and Manitoba. And we'll have 23 farms this year that are part of it. Um, So, and I think there's more, like some farms are taking multiple apprentices. So there'll be more apprentices than that on there. So yeah, we're really excited about that expansion. Yeah, when I got thinking about the question that I wanted to ask you, like, what is a new farmer? I was like, it's one of the few professions where somebody, you throw that adjective, like, new in front of it. Like, nobody talks about it. I'm, I'm a new baker or I'm a new carpenter or stuff like that. Like, I don't know. what. Why is it so important to make that distinction? I, I think that's such a great question. Um, you know, I, 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 I think in farming, because it is so intergenerational, and there's this big knowledge transfer that happens that's not super formalized. Like it doesn't happen in schools. It doesn't happen through like, um, you know, a carpentry apprenticeship. Um, I think that the, that that's part of it. Why we need to identify that group and identify their needs because they're, they're, you know, their needs are very different when you're starting your farming career than they are later in your farming career. I mean, there's kind of stages to all of it. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, I, we, people typically think of farmers, new farmers as the kids of existing farmers, Um, but we really need to redefine that. So we did a survey with the National Farmers Union and Food Secure Canada and the University of Manitoba in 2015 and 68% of, we surveyed uh, new farmers across Canada and 68% of them didn't come from a farming background. And that stat always like, especially I find it in, in like the farming world is really surprising for people. Um, and so, you know, what, what does that group need? Like they need, di- they need different resources besides the kids of farmers, right? So yeah, I, it's just, it just seems to be something that we need to kind of define and, bring specific attention to if we're going to solve this kind of 
land transfer that's going to happen and also like the you know that the the who's going to grow food for Canadians in the future like there's a food security imperative to this of you know having the own our own production <laughs> of food so that as we saw in COVID times if you know there's big disruptions to the the supply chains that we can actually feed our own population I always found it interesting like um with like kind of younger farmers but ones that grew up on a farm but weren't like vital to the operation of the farm or they never thought they were like how much they how much they learned but they didn't realize they learned like they kind of just just being in that culture in that house at that dinner table like they absorb still more than like myself who's been like actively trying to train himself up for years but they're still got they're way ahead of like they know the words they know what that does even if they did very, or they think they did very few things on the farm growing up, but I always find it very fascinating. Yeah, and I think that's like one of the things I have learned through this is not judging people's backgrounds too much of where they did come from, because I have spoken with farm kids who have no experience of the farm at all. You know, they were engaged in other things, which is totally fine. Um, but you know, yeah, it's just kind of funny. Like, you know, you're kind of testing out where people are actually like what do they you know know about farming kind of thing um I think the other thing about new farmers is that we often uh have been talking a lot about is that it's not young farmers new farmers is really like anybody of any age um I mean we we tend to have people in our network who are like kind of I would say like the 25 to 40 range um, but there's definitely people across the whole range. Like part of that national survey we did had, I think somebody who was 16 replied and somebody who was 80 replied as a new farmer. So um, yeah, like lots of people are see farming as like a second career that they, you know, they've, they're retiring and they want to start farming. Yeah, that's a busy retirement, but I, I can't <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They might not know exactly what they're getting into. <laughs> <laughs> cool, thanks. Um, as for the uh, types of agriculture that you've noticed uh, new farmers get into, is, is there a bit of a pattern? Um, do they go to towards certain practices or subsectors? Yeah, so with young agrarians, we've been really trying to, I mean, we need, we know that we need all types of farmers. And we also know that we need um, the kind of farming that fits the ecology of the prairies. Um, so, which is often larger scale uh, types of farming, like uh, with cattle and grain. I mean, that's why cattle and grain have emerged in Alberta. Um, and the hard part is, especially when you're talking about new farmers coming from a non-farming background, I think my, I kind of describe it as this like little, there's this logic to it of, you know, somebody can grow plants on their balcony and get the farming bug. And it's an easy jump for them to go from that to like growing a, uh, a garden at their neighbors to accessing like five to 10 acres of land and starting a market garden, which is actually a pretty big market garden. But um, <laughs> yeah. and, and market gardening is actually, can be profitable too. So like that is an appealing logic that new farmers can go through. So our challenge is like, how do we get people to, 
to get the bug about farming, but then think about things like uh, livestock and grain, because we need farms. Like most of the people calling me that have land and no successor are grain farms and cattle farms. Um, and so we're trying to figure out ways to expose people to those kinds of experiences. I mean, livestock can be pretty easy because it's easy to fall in love with animals and um, just like working with them, right? So um, yeah, we see people kind of making that jump. Um, and then um, the grain one is one that we're still like, we've got a few people who are taking that path, um, and we're really kind of watching what their needs are and their and their barriers are, um, but the, it's just a really kind of hard nut to crack that we're still trying to figure out. Um, and one of the questions that I started with with young agrarians was like, who are the regenerative ecological farmers of the prairies? And for me, in terms of the scale, like the the land scale of the farms, the land management requirements, like it's um, like the holistic management grazing practitioners and uh, organic or regenerative grain farmers are the people who are, you know, really doing the bulk of the regenerative farming in, in Alberta. And that, that's what we have our eye on, eye on, on training people into. Mm. I think the other thing that, uh, like we talked a little bit about this is that like farmers really want to feed their own communities, but they like the new farmers are really attracted to direct to consumer kind of marketing. Mm. Um, and I think that it's just easier for the, like it's pretty easy for them to get into it. They don't have to learn this whole, like, I mean, learning how to market to consumers is a, a difficult thing or is a complex like um, thing, um, but learning like how to market grain to like grain companies and, you know, into those kinds of markets is, is another level um, that, you know, it's over, it's, we can overcome it, but it's just like we need to uh, show people how to do it and find examples. Mm, yeah, no, well, it's always handy. You guys are doing things like business boot camps, or I guess they probably do. You guys do a boot camp on like how to direct it or direct market to, or sorry, how to market to like wheat companies and stuff. Like well, that, that that was one thing that came out of the business boot camp was that we, you know, we kind of assumed it was going to be direct marketers, so we had some experts come in and talk about that um and then there was a few people in the business boot camp that were um grain farmers and uh we were like oh they need some help so we're working on planning some uh courses for them kind of as add-ons to the boot camp to help them uh with that side of things and that's a lot of like kind of how our strategy has been is it's just really emergent responding to the community responding to the needs that we're seeing and those shift often and we're just trying to just trying to keep on top of it <laughs> yeah makes sense cool but i think in terms of like agriculture practices that i've seen like young farmers are like excited about these days um one of them is like no-till gardening like in the last year i've heard a lot of people like saying like we're going to transition into no-till gardening or you know, no dig gardening or whatever it's called. Um, and uh, that's really exciting. And then, uh, you know, I, the young people are really excited about flower farming. I've seen so many flower farms start up, <laughs> which is cool. It's, it's like a really neat um, little uh, 
new enterprises. And I think one of the reasons why flower farming is, um, is, has been successful uh, and is growing um, is one that they're beautiful and totally like Instagram is like amazing in flower farms. Um, and, uh, but I think the other is that they just, when you look at the community of flower farmers, there is really great learning supports of that farmer to farmer learning support. There's like one one or two programs that people take like a full kind of like a business boot camp, like a flower farmer boot camp kind of thing. Uh, so they all like learn the skills like really quickly and like, you know, get this really great network of supporters. And like all of a sudden they're, you know, building greenhouses and getting going and flower farming and you know, that's what we need for all types of different farming is those kinds of entry paths into it that shows people like, okay, this is, these are the things you need to think about along the way. And, and really just have that like encouragement of like, you can do it. Mm, no, I think that that really speaks to the power of having a really great community around you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also curious about well, like, what are some of, you know, like rural roots, we talk about co-benefits constantly. I'm just curious, what are some of the co-benefits of having new farmers out on the land? Um, well, I think the like obvious one is like just getting more people onto the land and the um, revitalization of local rural communities. You know, I think about like, we so we moved to our farm like two years ago and the amount of business we've given the tire shop. <laughs> <laughs> it's the reflection of like how much uh I don't know nails and stuff we ran over but it just seems like we've had so many flat tires and like you know we are part of like supporting that and uh all the other businesses in, in town right like the little restaurants and you know the banks and all that kind of stuff is is really important and you know it, it's kind of like on one hand you can like theoretically imagine that, but when you're actually on the farm, like seeing that, like when that tire shop goes away, that's a problem for us. And all of a sudden we have to drive an hour and a half to the next town to get the services that we need. And so it's we're kind of in this stage, I think with rural communities where it's like, we can't afford to lose any more people. <laughs> so, and if we can reverse this trend of getting, just getting more people out onto the line, living rurally, um, we, we just really need it. Um, and I think that COVID has actually shown people that like we're, I can't remember who I was talking to, but it was like, we had a conversation about how there's more people moving back to choosing to live in small towns because now they know that they can work remotely, um, which is really cool. It's cheaper to live usually in a rural town, like cost of living is down and just, the, you know, that connection with nature is usually a little bit more closer and which is really exciting. I think the I think the other kind of um, piece of that is like it's not just about the economy it's also about like the social networks and communities too like sometimes I describe the work of young agrarians is that we're basically like reweaving social networks in in rural um, and it's in those social networks where people are supported to thrive um, so um farmers often face a lot of isolation. Like I've heard so many times through COVID that farmers haven't really seen a change in their <laughs> social life. Um, I can't and, remember you saying that actually. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say that. Um, 
and uh, so we're we're physically isolated. Um, but new farmers and and farmers who are practicing regenerative or practicing climate friendly solutions are also often um, kind of philosophically isolated too. Is that they don't have a neighbor who's trying to do these weird things on their farm, you know, some, sometimes that person is an hour away or whatever. And so, yeah, like it's an important thing to be building those close connections between people so that they can support each other. Mm -hmm. um, one of the ways we've done that is through far the idea of farm clubs. And uh, we were in a farm club in Alberta and we were, we, we did some stuff together and like we'd meet up and, uh, kind of help each other um, with ideas and things like that. Like one one thing that came about from it was um, like my partner Ted had been exploring custom grazing, uh, but he just didn't he just couldn't quite take that step to actually like doing it. And uh, in the farm club, like somebody was like, "Well, why don't you just put an ad out? Like you don't have to actually do it. Just put an ad out that you're looking for cows to custom graze." And, you know, that was enough to just get them started. And then he found somebody and kind of got the ball rolling. Um, and we had the best farm club name. We would meet at the donut mill in Red Deer and we called ourselves the Donut Millionaires and we made stickers. And I recently heard that the Donut Millionaires reunited, but it was a bunch of flower farmers that were getting together at the donut mill, which is awesome. The stickers are gonna be more beautiful. <laughs> Um, but when we moved to Manitoba, um, it would just happen to be really great timing where uh, a farm club of kind of younger-ish new farmers in regenerative agriculture were getting together. Um, and so we just like, we got invited to that meeting and we just kind of got plopped down right into the network of regenerative farmers and like they live a ways away from us like when we go to meetings we're usually driving at least two hours but it's just so beneficial for us because they're having the same challenges they they can push our thinking and you know get us to think outside the box and and sometimes it's just that social support of being like this really sucks you know and I can't I just just need to be in this sucky space for a while with other people who get it um but that farm club has a pretty great name too because they call themselves the Regenerates. <laughs> <laughs> so all you need to farm is a farm club and a really great name. <laughs> and stickers, don't forget the stickers. And stickers, yeah. <laughs>uh okay so like kind of the, the main question for this episode and i've never actually referred to a human being or a class of human being or whatever you want to call it as a climate solution before but we're just going to kind of roll with it why are new farmers a climate solution <laughs> um yeah i mean one of the things that we notice among uh the new farmers we work with is that there's a huge motivation around the environment and um wanting to uh, work with ecology and work with nature. And I, I think that there, if you dig down into that, I think that there is this, I mean, you see it among young people, not just new farm, young new farmers, but um, you know, people wanna do good for the planet and people see farming as a practical way to do that, to be on the land, 
And um, I like, I also think the nature of farming that it is quite, you know, it's an ind independent enterprise pretty much, that there's a lot of room to be creative in um, what you bring to that, right? Like you have decision-making power for the most part over um, your enterprise and your business and, and your land. And so you can have a really big impact. And I think that that motivates a lot of new farmers. I think the other thing is that um, by focusing on new farmers, we can just train them immediately in kind of climate friendly skills and regenerative agriculture. And we don't have to do this like unlearning process um, with existing farmers. Um, lots of new farmers, I've heard people talk about like mentors of new farmers talk about how, you know, they cut, uh, they don't come with these like preconceived notions about how one should farm. And so they'll have, you know, really interesting questions and ideas about trying different things. And, you know, if they have a really solid understanding around like ecology and regenerative principles, they can be really creative in, in how they are actually working with the land. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, do you think like part of the attraction too for new farmers is also like the feeding people part? Like I can definitely hear you on the planet totally. part, but I guess the feeding people, and it has a connection to climate, maybe not a direct one, but yeah, I'm just wondering, I, you hear a lot, a lot of them talk about nutrient dense food, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you should, and I guess that's like part of it is like, there's kind of that ecological motivation around the land management, but yeah, there's like the ecological location or a motivation around creating uh, short supply chains. So local direct food, you know, they see that as a benefit environmentally and to their community you know they want to be feeding their neighbors and um yeah feeding meeting them face to face and contributing to their communities okay a 2015 survey of new and young farmers that dana mentioned earlier also found that agriculture producers who didn't grow up on a farm or ranch were more likely to be involved in what the report refers to as ecological practices one can assume that farm solutions that are climate solutions would fall into that category. Over 1,300 producers from across the country were interviewed. 68% of them didn't grow up on a farm. 17% grew up on a farm but were not currently farming on the farm they grew up on. And 15% were working on the same farm they grew up on. Of the survey respondents who didn't grow up on a farm or ranch, a whopping 89% were involved in ecological forms of production. Maybe now you see where I got this kooky idea of doing a podcast episode about new farmers being a climate solution. The survey also found that women were more likely to be involved in ecological forms of production than men. Alright, so new farmers are easier to train up in climate-friendly agriculture. They want to save the planet. They want to feed us good food. Sounds like an agricultural climate solution we'd want to put into action immediately. One slight problem. New farmers face quite a few obstacles when it comes to land access. To really understand the new farmer, you need to understand land access and the upcoming agricultural land transition. Yeah, um, like there's a stat floating around. I, you hear the stat in the States as well, um, uh, that in the next 10 years, 75% of the farmers will 
sell their land and their assets. We've probably been saying that for 10 years almost now. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it's, it, uh, it's kind of just pointing towards this impending shift um, as kind of the baby boomers and the older generation of farmers are retiring. Um, uh, there, you know, new land ownership is happening and new, not just land ownership, but also like farm businesses are changing hands, um, assets, all that kind of stuff. And it's definitely like a huge um, question mark that I hear from a lot of people. And I hear it from kind of policymakers. I hear it from the farmers themselves who call me and say, you know, I, I need to retire in the next five years and I don't have a successor. And some of that I think comes from some of the problem of that comes from, um, well, this is my theory, but it's like that we've kind of, farmers, farming has gone through kind of like the eighties, which were a really rough time because for farmers, because um, interest rates were really high. So on my father-in-law, he was paying interest rates at 18% at that time. Um, and so there, that was a time when a lot of farms um, got out and there was kind of, they, they, it was a, like totally that question of like, go big or go home kind of thing. And I think that like kind of weighed on the psyche of farmers. And as their kids were coming to the age of wanting, of potentially wanting to come and uh, take over the farm, they were actually told not to come back. Mm. Um, and I think that that's like a, I mean, some were, some weren't, but um, in some ways, like those farmers, I hear stories from them of like, you know, they, their kids went off to school and they went to college and became professionals or, you know, whatever. And I think in a lot of ways, th that generation of farmers sees that as a really great thing. Like that, that's success, you know, like more people engaging in learn higher education learning and um, opening those opportunities that potentially the last generation didn't have. Um, but now we're kind of left with lots of farms with no successors. Um, and when you think about thinking forward, like who are the few, who are the landowners going to be? Um, I think often it's going to be like the, you're going to have like professionals or people, those kids of the farmers still probably owning the land, but renting it out. Um, and a bit of that process I see happening is that often though those people don't know who to rent it out to so they just rent it out to the neighbor and that just kind of feeds into the farmers getting bigger um, and fewer farmers on the land um, and yeah and I also think there's this pressure of investment in land of um, yeah in investment firms and equity firms owning land and trying to maximize profit out of it so it might not be something that we like this shift might not be something that we like look out on the landscape and see this like huge change happen it's kind of behind closed doors of who actually owns what and um yeah just what what yeah the dynamics of of how people are accessing land is going to change some interesting stats from statistics canada to go along with those trends in agriculture that dana was talking about there 
I'll put the report where I got most of these stats from up on the website. If you're curious, it's a report that was done by the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. From 1966 to 2016, Alberta lost 34% of its farms, which actually is good in comparison to the rest of the country. If you look at Manitoba or Saskatchewan during that time period, they lost 50% of their farms. In fact, the only province that fared better than Alberta was BC, which lost 10% of its farms. The overall Canadian farming population has declined 62% during that period of time. So right now, or as of 2016, there were over 190,000 farms in Canada. And only 16,000 had succession plans. Of that 16,000, only 700 had succession plans with a non-family member. Dana also mentioned that the 80s were hard years in agriculture, that at that time, farmers had a choice, go big or go bust. Now, I grew up in the 80s, but I didn't grow up on a farm, so I wasn't 100% sure why the 80s were such a hard time for agriculture in Canada. So I did a bit of research. For a variety of reasons, including a recession and a global oversupply of grain, grain prices were the lowest they had been since the Great Depression, which in turn drove down land prices in the 80s. I found this article from 1987 in McLean's magazine, where they interviewed a Saskatchewan producer who is selling two sections of land, so roughly 1,300 acres, for a measly $200,000, which keep in mind, those are 1987 prices. So if you factor in inflation, works out to about $300 an acre. According to Farm Credit Canada, the cheapest farmland you could buy in Alberta last year was way up in Peace Country, and on average, farmland went for about $2,300 an acre. Once you got down south, so once you got to irrigated land, it got closer to $10,000 an acre, which, being completely honest here, just makes a guy want to cry. Anyway, as for go big or go bust, the number of farms working less than a thousand acres has been rapidly declining in Alberta since 1986. Farms of this size still make up more than half of the farms we have in the province, but they're only working about 15% of the land. Compare that to 1986, when they were working about 30% of agricultural land in the province. On the other hand, Farms that are working more than 5,000 acres, which are only about 6% of farms in the province, they're working about 40% of agriculture land in Alberta, which is double what they were working back in 1986. So maybe now you're starting to pull some of these threads together. Maybe you can see some of those really challenging obstacles that aspiring new farmers face to get into agriculture. Farmland isn't cheap, farms are becoming fewer, and they're becoming bigger, and the hint here is usually you need to own farmland to buy farmland. And on top of that, succession plans tend to stay in the family. Obviously one of the biggest issues facing new farmers is land access, and I never know how to describe the land access issue 
accurately? Like, I, I, is it a hard issue? Is it an impossible issue? Is it a challenging issue? Is it just complex? Is it all the above? Just kind of wondering what adjective you'd throw in front of the word issue in reference to land access. I would say complex captures it. All right. Um, complex, but not insurmountable. Um, Why? <laughs> maybe give a bit of hope there. Um, yeah, I think when we think about land access, I think some of like just the initial thoughts people have is like, oh, oh, you need to buy the farm and you, you know, the price of farm land now is like astronomical and like, it's just impossible. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't, that, that is like purchasing a farm is different than land access. Um, land access is more about being able to access the resource on which to farm and grow food um and so yeah i think we're just seeing we're part of that you know shift we're going to see is just different ways of people accessing it we're going to see a lot more leasing a lot more land sharing kind of like some of the models of like co-ops or community farms um and yeah like so it's like another area that we just like need to challenge paradigms um and think through how do we actually help people to support that so we we developed a, a land access guide for alberta and just released it lately and um it it includes like all kinds of different questions to think about um when you're thinking about accessing land or like if you're a new farmer looking for land um it also is like a great resource for people who have land and want to find somebody to come farm it um, because both of those things have different challenges but it's like about kind of wrapping your head around the complexity of it and we've we've developed um, Younger Grains BC actually developed like more of a it's there's like a process to kind of arriving at a good land access agreement um, and a lot of it just starts with those like visioning questions of like, what do you want the land to look like in the future? What do you want to see here? Do you want to keep living on the land? Um, do you want to retire in town? And then for the new farmer, or the land seeker, you know, questions like what kinds of things, what kinds of resources do you need on the farm? Do you need access to water? Do you need livestock pens? Do you need a barn? Do you need, you know, all those kinds of different things? So it's a huge document. Um, and uh, it works through all of those different details. It's got some examples um, from different case studies of different ways of accessing land and land sharing. Um, and we just hope, like we're really interested in hearing stories about how people are accessing land. Um, it's kind of, land access is one of those things that's like kind of further down that developmental path of new farmers. So. That's why I say it like often feels super daunting for people who are at the very beginning of their farming journey, like who, those are who, who are curious and are just like looking at it and thinking like that's impossible. Um, but it really comes at that point when you're like, you've gained some skills, you've built a network and you're ready to kind of get on the land and, and start something yourself. Um, and then after land access, there's all kinds of other issues that show up. So, you know, we kind of often talk about land access as like the number one barrier, but one of the best ways I've heard of it being described as a barrier is like, yeah, it is a barrier, but once you 
but there's a whole bunch of things before that barrier that are barriers. And then once you overcome the land barrier, there's a whole bunch of barriers after. Um, so yeah, yeah. And there's so many, like we just, we're just in this phase where we need to get super creative about accessing land. And there's so many unique um, things that people are trialing, which are really cool, like um, cooperatives, like, you know, there could be a cooperative where like uh, the, the land itself is owned by a cooperative and then they lease that land to a farmer or there could be a thing where, you know, the land, the farmer or the uh, um, older generation still owns the land or there's a landowner and then there's a farming cooperative that farm together on it, right? And they all don't have to pay this huge land payment, it's shared among them. Um, yeah, just really cool stuff happening. There's land sharing happening where there really aren't, really isn't a, um, like a cost to it. Like, um, when we lived in Alberta, my partner Ted and I just had a really small, um, direct marketing, uh, grass-fed beef and lamb business. And we ran it off of the, the acreage that I grew up on. So we had 20 acres and then we rented another 20 acres from the neighbors around us but nobody wanted us to pay them for it. So we had, like, they were just happy to see somebody use it and see some cows on it and have the grass eaten. And uh, yeah, like it was, uh, and maybe get some meat out of it at the end of the year. So there's a lot of that kind of stuff happening too. I think the other area in land access that's kind of interesting is, um, is those acreage owners um, where, they don't often see their farms as like food production farming kind of spaces, but um, they they can be, especially for kind of market gardening or, you know, growing mushrooms and microgreens kind of stuff. Like, I mean, that can happen in urban centers, but it could also happen if you need more land, you know, like talking to friends of neighbor, friend, or friends of family that have acreages, untapped resource. Good point. Almost like in like before you try to do this like massive capital raise to buy your farm is just like first go out there and try and build like those relationships to see if like what you want to do fits on that farm or what they what they need fits on that farm. Like I could just like again drawing my own experience, like the fact of being able to build so many relationships through this type of work. Um, yeah, if, if I want to plant veggies somewhere, it's become more and more easy uh, over the years because there's usually a cattle person who's just doing cattle, but they got you know, enough area for a market garden where I could jump in and do something like that. Yeah. I think the other piece around land access when you get into the cattle stuff or larger scale stuff and and gardening for that matter is, um, is the uh, uh, land security, like security, uh, lease land security. I can't say it. <laughs> lease land security? <laughs> Security around leases. Ah, okay. Um, so it's like, you know, it's really hard for somebody to start a business and invest in anything when they're on a year-to-year -year lease. Mm. Like, and you don't, you know, these new farmers, they want to be building soil. They want to be, you know, doing things that have big impact right on the land. And it's really hard to get in the mindset of like, I, I'm going to like really build the soil when you don't know if you're going to be there the next year. So trying to figure out how to have longer leases is a, is a big challenge. Um, and, and when it comes to like grazing and, and 
cattle and you know grain like yeah having longer term leases where you don't feel like you know you lose your land access and all of a sudden your your business is gone you know mm. is, a, is a big issue so learning how to we, there's some really great examples uh in our land access guide of like how to work towards that longer term lease because it, it's also a um this navigating like does a new farmer know enough right <laughs> can they 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 kind of need to prove themselves right so can you create a lease where there's like this onboarding process and but there's an incentive um for them to work towards getting that longer term lease um and then the other thing that you said reminded me that like land like we might new farmers might think that land ownership is never in the cards um but from what i've seen like new farmers who are able to build their business on leased um land and have a solid viable business they can have success going to lenders um, when it comes to actually wanting to buy land because they have a number of years of experience and financial data that's proven that their business is viable and so the bank is a lot more likely to give them money um, in order to purchase land yeah, i was just thinking like blake and Ange Hall. it's a really good example of that yeah yeah dana tackles a very challenging but very important question at this point in the interview you can almost hear how uncomfortable i was asking the question which pertains to land access truth and reconciliation and just generally being a good treaty partner from my own limited experience discussing this issue with agriculture producers as well as indigenous people in alberta it's a pretty touchy and even painful issue I realize nobody likes to hear that the land their family's been working for three or four generations really isn't theirs. But that feeling cuts both ways. Nobody likes to hear that the land their family's been on for thousands of years really isn't theirs either. If you could do me a favor for this next part, please keep an open heart and an open mind. Dana makes some good suggestions on how we can begin to tackle this challenging issue as agriculture producers in the spirit of truth and reconciliation. I'm gonna ask you, it might be a slightly uncomfortable question, but still pertaining to land access is not a surprise that one. Um, it's kind of this, when I would, when we talk about the land access issue and how we desperately need to get land in the hands of new farmers, Something that stuck with me from uh, a farmer in Castor four years ago was saying, yeah, it's funny how we talk about how we need to get the land in the hands of new farmers, but then like we kind of acquired the land here in a, in a way that a lot of us aren't proud of, to put that lightly, I guess. Um, yeah, does that add an additional level of complexity to that or how, how does one address it too? Yeah. I think it's uh, an uncomfortable feeling that many of us are trying to uh, learn about. And um, like it there, I've heard from people in our network where it's like just this feeling of like, yeah, well, we're like living on stolen land, right? Mm -hmm. Or that it's, um, we're living, we're living with the legacy of how the treaties were formed and the whole idea of like land ownership and property ownership and property rights is like pretty um, 
capitalistic, very individualistic, you know, that kind of thinking, which is of, you know, isn't <laughs> necessarily a value that we want to be all working towards. <laughs> um, like it's, uh, I think many people that from uh, that I've heard about in our community really want to learn more about how to change that relationship mm-hmm. and how to build relationships with indigenous communities, um, how to, and just what, what that means, you know, and what I find in those conversations is that, um, initially it really starts with a, just a lack of confidence about going out there and forming those relationships um, with Indigenous people. And I think that they're, the hard part is that that's, like, that's where to start, is to talk to the Indigenous people in your community um, and hear what they have to say about it. Like, I can make my assumptions about, like, what they're thinking, but that's not right. And it's totally biased. Like their voice needs to be part of it. Um, On our own land, like one of the ways that I've started to think about that um, was uh, I did kind of like a dive into the history of our land. Um, And in the rural communities here, I'm sure it's like this in Alberta too, but there's just like really great um, um, history books that if you kind of follow the names and stuff like that, you can really dig into like, okay, this family lived here at this time and then it was sold to this family, that kind of thing. So it, it helped me to just change from thinking about like, oh, we're here on the land now and that's what matters to, no, well, we're like in a long line of legacy of people who have stewarded that this land that goes all the way back to the indigenous peoples that were here before. And so it's almost like I feel like I'm on this journey of working backwards um, in that way. And it, it just helps us to give you a different perspective on the land and, and your place in it in this long kind of human history um, that is part of the context of what we're managing um, and what we're dealing with. I like the legacy part because I it kind of um there's something comforting knowing that you're part of this like 15,000 year legacy that it's not because the way we teach history is like history doesn't start till you colonization begins really and yeah I, I really think we need to start teaching like history like from the history of the land like its perspective like okay really when did humans first show up here and I'm just part of this you know yeah and I think by learning that history a little bit more and and like going to the books and textbooks and resources and like our community actually has a fairly good chapter in the history book on um the history of the uh, reserve that's near us and how they used the landscape um which is helpful because then when you go to build those relationships with indigenous people you have a place to start right like you can talk about how they you know where how they use the river um or the watershed here as like a highway and how you know all I'm sure they I kind of assume that they like rarely came up to like the flat part that we're on (laughs) because it's not that exciting it probably would have just been a big field of you know grasslands that all the good food and stuff was down in the valley and you know those are questions that I'd like like to talk through with somebody at some point when I can 
you know, meet somebody and develop that kind of relationship with them. But it's mm. very difficult to find that that starting point. Yeah. Mm. No, it is really tricky unless you're like find that those situations only happen if you're part of like the same training or group. Like I'm again just pulling on my own experiences. Like I was able to get have access or go to some reserves because I built a friendship beforehand because we were both part of the same training program or something like that. And that's yeah. really, but I guess that's how making friends works in general. Well, yeah, that's so true. Like, it's just like a human relationship building thing is where it starts. Mm. And um, it's, it, it, it is like always on my mind here because we live really close to reserves and like they're part of this community and, like, it just seems so strange to me to not have connections into those communities when they're your neighbors, you know? It's, it's very strange. <laughs> so one thing I think is really important is to start to learn um, Indigenous perspectives and how we can bring Indigenous narratives on into regenerative agriculture and into our land management. And um, one place that I, I think there's a lot of potential is in the concept of phenology. Um, so phenology is the study of um, um, natural events, uh, kind of when they occur and looking at um, different cycles throughout the year. So my first introduction to phenology was in a beekeeping course where it was like, you as a beekeeper, you should study when different flowers are um, opening and ready for pollination and that kind of thing so that your bees always have something to eat. And uh, in Alberta, there is a guy named Ryan Firstiver who teaches a Blackfoot phenology course. And so he's kind of marrying that phenology with Blackfoot traditions and has built the course around the moon cycle and uh, different things that happen. So it was just Easter here. And he like he talks about like when it's time to go and collect um, waterfowl eggs. And that happens after the, it's the full, first full moon after the equinox. And so that's like kind of the origins of like the Easter egg hunt, right? And oh. so as farmers, like back to that concept of having farmers as, um, natural naturalists and observers like we can learn so much about just observing the ecosystem and how it functions from traditional histories of indigenous people i like that idea of by learning about the history the culture the language that existed here well before european settlement we can get a better understanding of the land that we're managing and the ecosystems that we're striving to protect and regenerate. It sounds like it would just make us better land stewards. All right, so now the stage is set. We understand who and what the new farmer is, and we understand the challenges the new farmer faces to get into agriculture. And now we're ready for... All right, uh, so... Looks like uh, new farmers are definitely like a, a force that we can unleash as a climate solution. How do we unleash this force? <laughs> oh, man. Man, I think like unleashing that force is just a lot around. 
And for the answer to that question and many more, you'll have to download and listen to part two. Rural Roots to Climate Solutions is an Alberta-based initiative empowering agriculture producers and the communities they live in with climate solutions. Rural Roots runs workshops, field days, webinars, and social innovation labs. We work with rural communities to develop their own community-owned renewable energy projects. We produce a farmer's blog, and of course, there's this podcast. For more information about us and what we do, go to the website, which is www.rr2cs.ca. The Rural Roots to Climate Solutions team is Marie Galanka in Athabasca, Brenda Barrett and Alex, Lance Tailfeathers in Lethbridge, and myself, Derek Leahy. The podcast receives funding from a variety of foundations in Alberta. Parts of this podcast were recorded in Calgary. That means parts of the podcast were recorded on Treaty 7 lands and in Métis Region 3. Happy farming wherever you are in Alberta. And remember, what's good for the farm is usually good for the climate.